Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. We're on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on your local community radio station. And my name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. And I am Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. And you've got just the two of us for the first approximately 20 to 25 minutes of the Green Majority today. So Stefan Hostetter has decided to take the night off in order to treat his fiancée. Prioritizing his well-being and relationships like a chump. Freaking tool. Like uh, his fiance. It's his fiance's birthday today. Oh, that's nice. I also didn't know he was engaged. We need to socialize more Uh, outside of the Zoom box that is this show. Oh, it's adorable. I know nothing about your lives. I advised him to get the more expensive ring. That's nice. The investment and your support of his investment in the relationship and in this person. (laughs) Stefan is going to interview Emma Norton, who is the Atlantic director uh, of the Climate Emergency Unit. And they're going to talk further about the the East Coast, uh, Halifax, and that region, their plan for addressing climate change. And the Climate Emergency Unit was started by Seth Klein, right, whom you and Stefan interviewed last year. Yeah, yeah, the Climate Emergency Unit's um, a really great initiative that's pretty brand new um, that, uh, yeah, it started up this past year, like you said, by Seth Klein, who wrote The Good War, um, is, I believe, the title of his book. Uh, it's a it's a kind of interesting take on um, sort of a, a project nonprofit. They're only going to be around for the next four and a half years now at this point, um, kind of really focused in their goals, really uh, sort of time sensitive. So they're kind of getting in, getting out, getting the good work done. So I'm always happy to hear from them. Always happy to hear from Emma. She's a wonderful person as well. So looking forward to that interview for sure. And we're going to do climate news. Uh, But first, Lauren was going to talk about, well, what were you going to talk about? A couple good things. We both have good things to talk about today. Um, Mine is just a little plug for an event that's coming up on Tuesday. So if you're listening to this on Friday, it's coming up in just a couple days. It's an online kind of like rally celebration party thing being hosted by Stand.Earth and a bunch of other organizations um, to celebrate the fact that $40 trillion have been divested from the fossil fuel industry globally. And like, that's a number that was released, I think back in the fall, but people are finally getting around to kind of like celebrating it and making it a milestone. And I think it's just a really nice opportunity to like sit down and remember that like really good work has been done in the last couple decades and really good work continues to be done and like meaningful change is happening. Um, So some of the speakers that they're having at that are Amy Gray from Stand, Bill McKibben, who everybody is familiar with, Lou Aya from Peace Poets, Heather Coleman from the Wallace Global Fund. So and that's only a couple names. There's lots of really fantastic people who are going to be there. What a nice thing to do. Take a couple hours out of your day and like remember that there's a lot of power uh, behind the climate movement and um, and progress is, is being made. So that's um, 9 a.m. Pacific time, which is great for us in Ontario. It means it's noon our time. And again, that's being hosted by Stand.Earth. So you can check out their website for more details to get together and celebrate $40 trillion divested globally from the fossil fuel industry in what period of time a decade yeah i think it's like overall but basically if my if, if my understanding and my memory is correct the fossil fuel divestment campaigning really sort of started to ramp up globally around like 2011 2012 2013 so yeah in about a decade 40 trillion dollars has been has been divested i was gonna say 
right before we do some climate news, I mean, this is already climate news, but I just wanted to address further in the vein of animals thriving around the world. It's not just that, that animals are all suffering. Some animals are doing fine. And here we have a story from Climate Change News, straight up. Climate Home News. Climatechangenews.com called Climate Home News. And the headline is, Amazon Indigenous Community Restores Giant Freshwater Fish and Thrives. So, it's all there in the title. The Denny people in the Amazon. And these are these are massive fish. Piraruku. Pira I'm ready for our, our gigantic fish lords to take over the earth. Honestly, like I would, yeah, let's revert to to when when the oceans covered us all. I'd be happy about it. But also, like, genuinely, what a good story to sort of, like, start off the episode with. Because, yes, it is a good news story about some animals that are thriving. So wonderful. But it also is, like, another reminder and another sort of, like, case of Indigenous peoples doing a better job of protecting, preserving, and, like, upholding the integrity of an ecosystem than, like, settlers have ever done. So, yeah, all around. Excellent story. So glad we started off with that. These are massive man-sized fish that they haul uh, laboriously onto these onto, the, onto these thin canoes. And they've gone up, because they're fishing them, they started fishing them at, they say, sustainable levels. You know, I don't know the details. But they've gone up 425% in 11 years. And when this happens, fewer people want to leave, right, where they're from. So when you when you protect an area ecologically, the people that live there will not need to migrate, will not desire to migrate. So ecological mm -hmm. protection is good for everybody, no matter where it occurs on the globe. And they really are colossal. It's like a sea monster sized freshwater fish. Yeah, that'll feed you for over a week for sure. Like, look at that thing. Oh my God, rest of my damn life. Yeah, this, so this is actually good-ish news here. So the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe has secured a legal victory against the operators of the Dakota Access Pipeline. The United States Supreme Court has refused to listen to an appeal by the company by which they were trying to avoid a new environmental assessment of the pipeline. A new environmental assessment will therefore be done and could conceivably lead to a shutdown of the pipeline although it will remain operating while the new review is carried out. The pipeline was built under a lake, which is a very important water source for various communities. The last environmental review, which was also done only after the pipeline was completed, was rendered null because one of the contractors conducting the review had a financial interest in the pipeline. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and their allies fought a long and brutal battle with the Dakota Access Pipeline in person, uh, more so with the security guards hired by this Dakota Access Pipeline and the police and federal agents, etc., etc. In person six years ago, as it was being built, uh, then they endured attack dogs, rubber bullets, fire, infiltration, and water cannons in freezing temperatures. 
Standing Rock was huge news for months, right? Like it was like thousands of people gathered in um, North Dakota, I believe, to to combat the pipeline. But it's this is a good news story. Obviously, the jury's still like quite literally out. We'll have to wait and see what this new environmental assessment comes back with. And and unfortunately, like you said, <laughs> pipeline operation will still be carried out while this new assessment is is being undertaken. But um, this is a positive move. The fact that a judge did determine the old one to be null and void does show that they're like there is some um, understanding of the damage that's been caused here. Now, I will say, caveat is, environmental assessments very, 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 very rarely would lead to the cancellation of a project, at least historically speaking. I know some of those tides are turning, at least in, uh, in on this side of the colonial border in so-called Canada. Not too sure what it's like in the States, realistically. Um, but this is at least still a positive step forward and also a demonstration that there's still a really, really strong showing um, against this pipeline and a lot of force um, in the communities that are sort of actively working to combat it. So a huge congratulations to them for the ongoing work that they're doing and for this victory. And um, hopefully, hopefully it sticks, hopefully it lasts, hopefully it results in like a real formal cancellation of, of the Dakota Access Pipeline. A Trump appointed judge in the United States, however that works. Uh, but he has blocked the Biden administration's plans to increase the so-called uh, social cost of carbon. Now, in response to this, the administration has paused all oil and gas leasing as they appeal the decision and try to decide what to do. The social cost of carbon is a pri carbon pricing mechanism that incentivizes transitioning to a more sustainable economy. It puts a price on greenhouse gas pollution in order to factor in the larger economic costs of that pollution, such as the intensification of climate change, which brings with it harsher natural disasters. Ten Republican attorneys general sued the administration over the carbon price, and this Judge James Kane of the Western District of Louisiana agreed that the price should not have been issued via executive order and that it was harming fossil fuel producing states. The pricing scheme, which charges $51 per ton of CO2 emissions, is necessary for the administration to go ahead with a lot of its climate measures, including, according to the Associated Press, quote, plans to restrict methane waste emissions from natural gas drilling on public lands, a court-ordered plan to develop energy conservation standards for manufactured housing, and a $3.2 billion federal grant program for transit projects. So what's happened is that people who are against slowing down fossil fuel production in the United States have derailed or delayed some climate measures that have taken a lot of work to develop. But it means that less oil drilling is happening in the short term because the pricing mechanism was central to how the government was planning to carry out new permits. I don't really understand how the carbon price, it's a price on CO2 emissions, carbon emissions, right? But it also affects how they were going to regulate methane waste. I imagine in that case, there would have been some sort of equivalency agreement there or like equivalency understanding so that like accounting for methane to be representative of X number of tons of carbon, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what the actual equivalency or conversion would be, but like, that's what I would have to imagine. But is, is, is something like this surprising? No. Is something like this still like upsetting and infuriating? Yes. Because it's like, what did you say? The, the district attorney or the, 
the, the Louisiana judge agreed that the price shouldn't have been issued via executive order and that it's harming fossil fuel producing states. And it's like the whole idea of putting a social cost on carbon is to account for the fact that like the production of carbon is what's harming these people. Like, yes, you're going to, you're, you're going to see a financial hit to those fossil fuel companies, but like that's nothing compared to the harm that's been caused. That's been like per, uh, perpetrated onto these communities and these workers and the rest of us globally for decades and decades and decades. So the, I don't know. It's like I said, in no way surprising, but ultimately still infuriating. And um, yeah, it will obviously have a very real effect on what fossil fuel production in the States looks like, because in the short term, when it was instated, it was resulting in less oil drilling um, because the government had been using it to sort of determine what projects to, to give permits to. So it, it was proving to be an effective measure in some shape or form. So the fact that it's been lifted is depressing. They're, the administration thinks that their appeal will work, but they were rejected in their request to have the judge stay the decision while the appeal was happening. So here we are. This next story is also about also touching on methane, right? That's correct. So the International Energy Agency, the IEA, has recently found that methane emissions from fossil fuel projects are 70% higher than previously estimated. So the executive director of the IEA, Faith Birol, said this was massive and alarming. These methane emissions, which are released as waste from fossil fuel development, could, however, be captured with no net cost because methane is the main component of natural gas and could therefore be easily resold, which would also bring down natural gas prices. No one currently has large-scale plans to do this, however. Yeah, and it's also, like, incredibly difficult, <laughs> like, so much harder than people say it is. And, like, I, I, know, I know it says, like, could be easily resold and there'd be no net cost, but like, it's an incredibly like costly, um, technology to invest in upfront. And I mean, yes, there's a lot of sort of call from industry to get government subsidization of this, like carbon capture utilization and storage technology. But ultimately we need to be discouraging governments from investing in that because it really is just a red herring and excuse to prolong the fossil, the, the oil and gas industry. I was listening to, a riveting um, committee meeting that was happening a couple weeks ago, last week maybe, um, for uh, the natural resources like parliamentary committee. Um, and at this parliamentary committee hearing, um, there were a bunch of testimonials um, or testimony, plural, from various um, oil and gas lobbying groups. And all of them, every single one, I believe at some point referenced natural gas as being sort of like the path forward for Canada. So like all of these oil and gas companies are banking on natural gas as sort of like, as sort of their, not even their bridge fuel, they're, they're banking on it being their future as an industry. So I think like that alone is, is proof that, that these aren't technologies and these aren't sort of solutions and, and energy products that are, that are in any way actually better for the environment or from a, from a climate standpoint or from an emission standpoint, they're literally just like the most viable option for an oil and gas company or for cap to, to invest time and money. in. so it's don't, don't trust carbon capture utilization and storage technology when it's touted as the future. Don't trust renewable natural gas because that's not a thing. And like at the end of the day, like, yeah, this was proof that 
even as it stands and as it currently exists, we have an incredibly hard time getting a good handle on, on the, the amount of methane emissions that come out of natural gas production, because there is so much leakage. There is so, there are so many opportunities along that sort of like chain of production for emissions to leak. So like, even, even if, even if best case scenario, we develop like perfect carbon capture storage technology to um, sequester the emissions from methane production or from, from natural gas production. Like how can you be sure that you're actually getting everything when it's like, it's really hard, even just from like the, in the, in the simplest sense, it's really hard to keep gas in a confined space. So how can you possibly make sure that it's not leaking out of your pipe at every single opportunity? Anyway, that's like a really kind of like silly way of conceptualizing it, but like they're quite literally leaks in the process chain. So Canada's Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. Oh, you'll love this. You love this story. Did you read this one? Oh, just lovely. So Canada's Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, which was, of course, purchased by the Canadian government in 2018 for four and a half billion dollars because the company Kinder Morgan was having trouble building it is now going to cost over $20 billion to complete, which is $15 billion more than predicted, and the costs will probably continue to rise. This news has led the government to declare that it will not be putting any more public money into the project, although it will probably have to guarantee new loans in order to get any private investors on board, which means that the Canadian public will still be paying for the pipeline. The CEO of the Trans Mountain Corporation, Ian Anderson, who was previously president of Kinder Morgan, has announced that he will be retiring in April. So in 2018, Kinder Morgan decided the project was failing, which scared the government into purchasing the pipeline, which then installed Kinder Morgan's president to lead the new Trans Mountain Corporation. And now the pipeline is only half done, will probably now not be completed until 2024 at the earliest. Its costs have gone up 70%, and the CEO is now retiring. The company has blamed COVID-19 and the devastating mudslides and flooding in BC as reasons for the increased costs. Uh, the energy mix quotes Sven Biggs from Stan.Earth as saying, quote, Just like in 2018, the project is taking on financial water and has a questionable market. And they're out there looking for private funding that just doesn't seem to be interested in this kind of project anymore. But since 2018, the CER, the Canada Energy Regulator, issued an energy futures report that seemed to suggest this project might not be needed. The International Energy Agency basically said no new pipelines are needed if we tackle climate change. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said we have to stop these kinds of projects if we want any chance of getting control of the climate emergency. So the case for this pipeline has gotten much, much worse since it was last looking for private financing. Like, there's literally nothing else to say about this dumb, 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 dumb pipeline. It was a bad investment in the, in the first place because you were purchasing a pipeline from a company that presumably saw no value in it. So like right, right then and there, even if it was only $4 billion, you sank, that's 4 billion taxpayer dollars that you lost in this investment that then you probably could have predicted would have no return. Now we're finding out that it's cost us a further, a further, what, $16 billion up until this point. Like it in no way 
does this project or has this project ever made sense from a financial standpoint? And that's not even taking into consideration the fact that like, yeah, we know that if we have any hope of keeping to our Paris targets, and that means keeping the planet to be like a relatively livable and pleasant place, I say is like, we just lived through like a summer of horrific floods and wildfires. Like this pipeline and this project is incompatible with a livable future. So it's just the continued insistence of the federal government or of yeah continued insistence from the federal government for us to prop up this project just to like I don't know keep a handful of jobs is nuts to me because at the end of the day it's like these aren't long-term jobs that we're that we're investing in these are short-term get in get out build the thing and be done with it positions so we can pump oil overseas into communities that likely don't need it or want it either. Like it's not even, there's, there's not even like the, the dumb reason that some people say it's like, oh, well, like we need to be like energy independent as a nation. It's like, Hey, that's hodgepodge. We don't like, that's, that's a ridiculous thing to say, but also like, this isn't even oil that Canada is going to be using in no way. Does this project make sense? I don't even know. I'm still rambling about it. These are all points that we've made a zillion times before. And I just need somebody at the federal level to have like a modicum of courage and say what we're all thinking that like this particular emperor has no clothes. We need to let it die. We need to let it go. Think of the supports you could give to workers all across this so-called nation if we invest, if we invested $20 billion in supporting the workforce and supporting everyday people through like, I don't know, universal basic income or pharmacare or childcare or like medical supports or through, or for job retraining. Like there are, there are a million better uses for this money to support our communities and support our workers than putting it into this dead end pipeline. It doesn't help anyone except for like, I don't know, 10 oil and gas, like lobbyists and executives. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans, the DFO, in Canada has overstepped its bounds and unilaterally shut down a fishery in Hailsuk Nation in, in the Hailsuk Nation in BC. Uh, one month before harvesting season, the DFO has declared that no one may harvest commercially, even though the Hailsuk Nation are the rightful stewards of their own territory, something that was even recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada in 1996. The elected chief of the nation, Marilyn Slett, said, quote, we're extremely troubled by this decision we, since we were forced to protest DFO's management of the Sacro fishery in 2015. We have worked hard to build trust and collaboratively manage herring stocks in Hailsuk territory. This unilateral decision to close our commercial spawn on kelp fishery, SOK fishery, completely undermines those efforts and threatens to underdo years of cooperation. It also infringes our rights. The nation writes on their website, quote, the Hailsuk Nation have managed the SOK fishery sustainably since time immemorial. Unlike sac row herring fisheries, the SOK fishery does not cause fish mortality and is self-limiting because it is only viable when there is abundant spawn in the harvest area. GFO's decision fails to reflect this important distinction between Seine and Gillnet sac row fisheries and Hailsuk's SOK fishery. So this is a difference because in the in, with the other with the other fisheries that they're comparing this to, you would use a net and you would drag it and you would collect with a net. Whereas this, they're just pulling up the kelp 
uh, itself from the water and the, the because they've um, the spawn is already on the kelp. And so that's the difference here. Uh, so the commercial spawn on kelp fishery is much more than an economic lifeline for the community, they write. Uh, herring has been the cornerstone of Hailsuk culture for thousands of years. DFO's decision to close the fishery ignores Hailsuk knowledge of herring management and will not be taken lying down. Vancouver Island Free Daily notes that Joyce Murray, the minister in charge of these things, said back in December, quote, This is an extraordinary time when our Pacific coast is reeling from natural disasters and the serious damage they have caused to the environment and our iconic Pacific salmon. Herring are vital to the health of our ecosystem and the stocks are in a fragile state. We must do what we can to protect and regenerate this important forage species. Chief Slett said, however, quote, We have emphasized the practice of our fishery is a non-kill fishery. This is a very sustainable fishery and, and not like the commercial fishery, which takes the whole fish. There are distinct differences. The DFO needs to get their stuff together. I mean, they're, they're just constantly failing, it seems. I don't know what's going on. And they just seemingly have, like, no respect for Indigenous nations and their, like, rights to livelihood and... And those fisheries, it's it's not the same thing, but but a similar um, case to what we witnessed was it last year in um, on the east coast with um, with Mi'kmaq fisheries and um, and Mi'kmaq fisher folks, like okay. it's 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 a lack of respect for their sovereignty for their rights to those fisheries, and it's it's a lack of understanding that like yes conserving those 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 fisheries and those fish populations is really important but it's a lack of understanding that like these indigenous nations know how to know how to fish and know how to harvest from these from these areas in in ways that are sustainable in ways that aren't going to deplete the and the like the ecosystems and, and in ways that aren't going to damage those fish populations and the fact that we continue to equate um indigenous fishing practices with like incredibly extractivist settler-based practices is like is is foolish it's it just demonstrates a fundamental lack of understanding of the situation at hand here and the fact that it's like the dfo the, the department of fisheries and oceans whose job it is to be able to assess and understand these circumstances and, and like the differences in these practices it's like in a really good case study for like the wider lack of understanding of indigenous livelihoods and practices and sovereignties and rights within the federal government yeah like at the very least follow your own laws like if your own if your own laws if your own courts say that like these uh this nation has a right to determine its own territory then just don't unilaterally tell them like 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 uh enforce yourself upon what they're doing it just doesn't especially in and i understand provincial jurisdiction and federal jurisdiction are different but especially in a province where like supposedly undrip was was like has has been adopted supposedly it's being upheld like the fact that like i understand again jurisdictionality is a thing but like you would think in a province where undrip had been implemented that would trump everything but alas we know that's actually not the case because it's it's a colonial system that ultimately will always benefit the settler government
My name is Seven Hostetter, and I am back with an interview with Emma Norton, the Atlantic Director with Climate Emergency Unit. Thanks so much, Emma. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So <laughs> this is part two of our dive into some of the great work that's happening out in the Atlantic region in terms of the region of Halifax's climate plan. But before we dive into that, by way of introduction, you know, can you tell listeners about your background and what your organization, the Climate Emergency Unit, is focused on? Yeah, thanks. So I work with Climate Emergency Unit, like you mentioned. We are a project of the David Suzuki Institute, so not the charitable foundation, but it is part of the David Suzuki realm. And we are a five-year project because we are extremely motivated by the urgency of the climate emergency. And the Climate Emergency Unit itself was sparked by the good war by Seth Klein. And I know Seth's been on your podcast before. So Seth wrote this book about how we need to mobilize for the climate emergency in a similar way to how we mobilized for the Second World War. And that was spending what it takes to win, creating new institutions that will get the job done, moving from voluntary to mandatory measures, so leveling the playing field for everyone, and telling the truth. And then we've added two other markers of what a government and climate emergency would do, and that is leave no one behind. So that's the just transition piece and the climate justice piece in particular, and uplifting and centering Indigenous sovereignty and leadership in all the solutions. So we are trying to work with others to help build the power that will mobilize our, all levels of government into climate emergency mode. And I focus on Atlantic Canada, because that's where I live. I live in Winnipeg, which is Dartmouth in Nova Scotia, part of HRM, Halifax Regional Municipality, and the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq. And so I'm doing work and trying to do work in all the four provinces. I am but one person, but there's a great network of people out there. Awesome. And so I do want to talk a little bit about how responding as if it's an emergency can trickle down. But before I get there, I just want to get, last week we did hear from a couple city councillors about how the Halifax city climate plan has gone. But I'm curious from your perspective as a activist sort of pushing, how's it going? And what has the path been to get there? So Halifax has an incredible climate plan, right? They're planning to reduce their emissions 75% by the year 2030. They want to do deep energy retrofits on like every building by 2035. What they're saying they're going to do, their targets are definitely in climate emergency mode. I don't see them talking about fossil fuels, which I always look for. And I, I don't see a really excellent communication strategy. So they're missing the telling the truth part, but I think they, I think that the plan that they have is excellent and they just need to find a way to operationalize it and resource it. And that's where we're at now. So basically the plan, you probably know, I might be saying what you know already from the councillors, but the municipality declared a climate emergency in 2019. In 2020, they introduced this climate plan and then boom, COVID hit and they're totally thrown off. But they know, like the councillors are aware, the staff are aware that if they're going to stay within their calculated carbon budget, they need to change their business as usual. <laughs> they need to change their approach because they're going to run out of their carbon budget by 2027 or 2028, which like that is to me, again, those are the numbers. That is the reality we're in. We're quickly depleting our carbon budget, especially 
you know, in Canada, we've already used our carbon budget if we're talking about fairness and justice. So the most challenging part for me and how I see Halifax approaching its climate plan is it's trying to incentivize its way to victory, as Seth would say, right? It's like incentives. It's the carrots. I don't really think there's any sticks and there's no mandatory measures in place. And a lot of that is just because of the jurisdiction of a municipality. Like Halifax can't adopt its own building code. It has to adopt the building code of the province, for example. And we know that 66, two thirds of the greenhouse gas emissions in Halifax are from its buildings. So how are they gonna take action? They need support from the province. But again, this is a time of innovation and needing to break some rules and push some boundaries. And I would like to see Halifax doing a little bit more of that. But right now, climate organizers and climate activists in Halifax are trying to do is to at least get the Halifax climate plan fully funded. So we're trying to hit the spend what it takes marker. And I will keep banging the mandatory measures drum, but for us, we're really trying to focus on this budget this time around. Yeah, that makes all of the sense. As we talked about with the Kansas last week, I think there's a huge deficit between the robustness of so many plans out there and the willingness to actually fund them to make them possible. And so it's honestly, I was pretty impressed by even the steps that Halifax was already taking to even try to get it funded in the ways that is just not happening in other jurisdictions. But you there you referenced an interesting thing, which I think is really key, and it combines sort of two conversations that we're heading towards, which is the fact that the municipality does not control how, what kind of power it gets, which is a problem everywhere. You know, it's a problem here in Toronto's climate plan. They're really worried about a whole bunch of natural gas plants coming online over the next 10 years and basically tanking their entire hopes of reducing emissions. And any municipality out there with robust plans is going to come into this problem because of the fact that they don't actually control, you know, their power. And so when you talk about taking this emergency response, I think people can often understand of it from a federal or even provincial perspective because there are so many more levers. But in municipal politics, you have a lot less power. And so I'm curious how you would see the advancement of an emergency in what's the most emergency mode a city could go in? Like, what does that look like given their sort of jurisdictional difficulties? Yeah, that's uh, an excellent question. And I think I'm just going to focus on as much as I can on Halifax in this because it varies province by province. And I'm not an expert on municipal policies and jurisdiction. I do spend more of my time at the provincial level and the federal level, but this is really important to me. One of the reasons it is important to me is because Halifax has done a good job of trying to engage with stakeholders. So I've felt like part of the process, which was really excellent. And I think the first thing that came to mind when you ask that question is I, there is definitely a limit to what they can do, but I am very tired of hearing counselors say, let's just see what the province and the feds do, and then we'll make a decision. It's like, you are definitely not in emergency mode then. You're just deciding that you will do whatever is left over after the province and the feds moves, right? Like you have to do as much as possible <laughs> and then hope that the province and the feds meet you. And my job is to make sure they do, right? It's, and like my the job of other organizers is to say, well, we see Halifax over here and there's lots of great municipal climate plans in Nova Scotia, not just Halifax. And 
we see them over here with these great climate plans they can't implement because they won't give you the jurisdiction. Okay, Minister Hellman, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, we need you to work with us to give them their power to change the charter. But the councillors cannot wait until we do that. They need to start moving right away. So that's one of the like really key things. They do need to think about creative ways of revenue collection and spending. And, and the, like a very, very clear indicator to me would be that what the municipal government can control, they are no longer investing in any kind of fossil fuels, like whether it's new builds, if they need to replace an oil furnace in one of their buildings, they better not be replacing it with oil. They better be replacing it with maybe doing a deep energy retrofit and an electric heat pump. They shouldn't be buying any more combustion engine vehicles. I, I would see some other like really exciting emergency level responses too. significant investments in public transit, maybe making it free, you know, looking at, we have some really great public transit ideas here in Halifax that I had, I know others who can speak much better to it. So I don't want to give the wrong ideas, but the Ecology Action Center in particular has done some great work. So I think it, it's those really clear indicators of we're not going to invest in infrastructure that's tying us into a future of fossil fuels. And in Halifax, it really, really is largely focused on buildings and retrofits. Right. That does seem to be a pretty common across most jurisdictions. It ends up being buildings, a bit of waste, a bit of transportation, as you as you referenced, but especially within the borders. The city also owns so many buildings so often that even just retrofitting those buildings is a huge step forward. And I guess that's that makes sense. A lot of sense. Like To me, the idea of emergency, in some ways, is just asks the question, what is the most we could possibly do? And making transit free, speeding up the speed of retrofitting all your buildings, those types of things of being like, no, no, we're just going to do everything we can is to me part of the emergency mode. It's like, if you could think of something else you could do that would definitely reduce emissions, do that thing. And that becomes a, the mantra. Yeah. Yeah. And don't do the things that do increase emissions. I don't know. Don't buy a big military vehicle tank for your police force. We managed to stop that last year in Halifax with a lot of outcry. And like, that was more about not spending unnecessarily on the police, but that money should definitely go towards something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Almost anything would reduce more emissions than the police owning a tank. And so obviously I think the Halifax is an example of some of the successes that a strong motivated populace along with a willing and not super antagonistic politicians fear can create. And yet I'm sure it's still not easy. Like, you know, you mentioned COVID and I'm sure this is obviously a longer process. And so in your work, have you experienced any particular challenges with this process or with pushing this process that you would expect others to experience that you could warn people about or help people navigate? There are many politicians who will say the right words and not take action. Like they'll say, oh, climate's important. But when, it, when push comes to shove, they're not going to do it. I was pretty disappointed to hear Mayor Savage, who is the mayor of Halifax, say some really amazing things about climate. But when I met with him, I wasn't disappointed by the amazing things he said. What I was disappointed by is when I met with him, his extreme focus on debt. And, you know, my question to him is, like, when do you see people in the streets complaining about more debt? 
like more public debt. You don't. Like we are facing an existential crisis here. And I'm really tired of hearing people like him or other elected officials say the Chamber of Commerce doesn't support this kind of climate action because it increases debt or it might increase taxes. It's like, well, that's too bad. I don't support when you don't take climate action and you're not talking about that. You need to put on your I'm the boss pants and like realize that you're in a position of power right now. So I think it's really important that we call out our elected officials on the power that they have. And I'm also very tired of having elected officials and staff tell me, well, it's everyone's job to take action right now. It's like, I am doing my job. I'm doing, sometimes I feel like I'm kind of doing your job. <laughs> this isn't true of everyone who's ever said that to me if they're listening. But <laughs> like, you are the folks with the power right now. And for you to say that is really dismissive and in denial of the fact that you have to be the one that takes the risks and makes the big changes. So I think I'm very tired of hearing people talk about debt as a reason not to take climate action because like debt is not going to matter when we don't have clean water, clean air to breathe. You know about all the implications of climate. I do find that politicians are a little bit more prepared to hear that than they are ready to hear that you expect them to do better than to just use someone else as an excuse to not take action. Interesting. So you're saying that if you're pushing someone, you found the push to be more effective if the question is more about how debt at this point is a bit meaningless when we are destroying the world versus saying you can't just keep waiting for other jurisdictions. Yeah, I, I haven't really heard a politician, or at least I feel like we've been saying for a long time that that doesn't matter in a dead planet. Like, I feel like obviously that's not landing unless we're just not, unless it's, they're literally not hearing it. And I don't know that. And, but I do know that many politicians have not been properly lobbied on climate and they have been lobbied by fossil fuels. So maybe we, we can continue to say that, but I, what I think is important is to remind them that they have a responsibility. Like they know in their hearts that that is true, that we need, that doesn't matter on a dead planet and they have a responsibility to do better. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And so in terms of organizing that you've done that has worked in terms of getting your communities together to do things, what have you learned through that process over the past couple of years that you could suggest to others? I've learned that it's, it can be really challenging to organize with people and we have to have lots of patience and assume the best of each other. And when there's a problem, call the person right away. Maybe take a breath and then call them. But I find that because then it shows you you have trust that they can do better. The Climate Hub out of Montreal or lehub.ca, I think, is offering some really amazing workshops. So then I want to shout those out for like folks who are doing organizing in their communities on how to good structure and decolonizing and, and how to deal with conflict in groups. And I'm saying all that, but right now, like I'm paid to organize, right? And it's really hard to find the energy to organize outside of work right now, I think for lots of people, unless they're forced to do it because of their livelihoods, which a lot of people are forced to do right now. So what I would say is like, we need to be building power in the places where we're living that, where we're living and working that don't have anything to do with climate. So if you're part of a union, start talking about climate in your union. If you go to church, 
if you're going to any kind of worship space, talk to your friends and family there about what they're going to do and try to push it in the direction of advocacy. I still think community gardens, efficiency upgrades, those are great things, but we really need to be building our power in institutions using the, like, if I was able to go meet with my counselor, who happens to be Sam Austin, who you chatted with, I was going to go meet with counselor Austin. And I would say, well, I'm actually here on behalf of this church. I represent 200 people and we're all in your constituency. That's a lot more important than saying, Hey, I'm Emma. I'm your neighbor down the street. Not more important. It's more powerful. So I really feel like that's the way we need to start using the spaces that we're already organizing in. Like I'm a little bit less interested right now in starting a new climate group than I am in chatting with my book club ladies about what our next book will be about climate and if we're going to write a letter to my counselor. (laughs) Right. That makes sense. I I was thinking about that actually earlier today, just for some other completely reason about how the next step did feel like entering in other spaces and bringing climate with you because there are so many other locusts of groups of people who care about a better world that are connected. I think if anything, climate justice and the way that people are going has brought to the fore the way that climate is connected to everything. And so decentering climate in your organizing, but to then always have it with you and bring it into the spaces. Some of the biggest wins we've seen, I, I believe in the show previously, we talked about how New York had a huge success working through unions to push clean energy. That didn't come from environmental group, but came directly from the unions that sort of brought that forward. And these other structures that people do live in and exist in, yeah, I do think about that a lot, especially when it comes to this idea of like meeting people where they're at and trying to bring these other interesting, important topics into conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, if anyone wants to do that, they can get in touch with us, the Climate Emergency Unit. That's We're interested in that, like, how do we bring this conversation to not only environmentalists, but to other people? Awesome. That's great. Uh, it's very good to hear that. I didn't know that. That's wonderful news. So this is a bit of a pivot. But I think it's an important conversation that we're continuing to ongoing to have, which is about climate anxiety, because it's something that has been coming up more and more and more. And it's not something I think that traditional outlets are really engaging with. And so I'm just going on collecting people's opinions about how they deal with climate anxiety from as many people as possible every time I interview anybody. And so <laughs> cool. great. Yeah. Two part question. Do you experience it? And if so, how uh, do you manage it? I have very bad climate anxiety. I am a lucky person to get to work on solutions all the time, which like we know that action can really help. I have a therapist that I was hoping would help me with this, but I keep just like explaining the carbon budget to her. And she's like, so you work in the environmental field. And like, she's been good for like lots of things that have to do with just being a human. But when I'm like, but climate change, she's like, not very helpful. And I'm tired of trying to explain the just transition to her. So would really love anyone's recommendations for uh, therapists that help with this. I have been following this cool Instagram account, the climate chaplain showed out to, I think the person I know, I think is named Gab really loving that. Like for a little while, several years ago, I was talking with one of my friends and colleagues about the need for like some kind of spiritual space for activists. I've been a part of different churches for like a lot of my life. When things were hard, I would go to my youth group and sing songs with them. And 
singing with people. It feels so nice and it's so hard to do right now. But I, I recognize the church is really unsafe for lots of people. But one of the great things about it is it is a community of people that are getting together based on something bigger and better than them and believe in something good. And so I think like having some kind of like climate church would be really nice. And so my friend organized something called like tea for the end of the world for myself and a few friends that we would just get together and just talk about everything and drink tea and maybe have some cookies. And of course, it like we were not actually very good at maybe it's it's continued in a way that I'm not like super in touch with anymore. But I, I ended up having to bow out a lot of the time. It's hard to coordinate schedules. But when it did happen, it was really nice. We also just ended up having this Facebook messenger group where we would just like check in on each other when things got really bad. Like, I think they were doing this around the time Trump was elected. So like just regular kind of check-ins, like how y'all doing today? It's a hard day. Like maybe go take a bath. Yeah. And I think I'm doing a lot of the things that like, yeah, my therapist would be like, good job, like meditating and trying to get outside a lot. As much I try to get outside two hours a week if I can. Definitely not always successful. And yeah, the other thing, I don't know if this is helpful for other people, but I love to dream about what I would do if the world wasn't burning, which might be actually just not a really helpful thing for some folks because like it might never be burning. Like even if we solve climate, some of these social justice issues are just not going away. Even and we're not going to solve climate. So I need to recognize that. But it is kind of nice to remind myself who I am outside of this this space of climate organizing. Yeah, for sure. I, I saw a conversation a couple of weeks ago on climate Twitter about trying to find therapists who you didn't have to explain climate change to and how difficult some people were finding that. And so you're not alone in this thing. But we did talk to Gabby a couple of weeks ago on the show about, about their work. And it's, it sounds amazing. I came across it and was like, this is exactly what I think is needed. And we dramatically need more of these. And it was a really interesting conversation. There's another organization that we work with here in Toronto from time to time. That's a mental health organization for universities. And a couple of years ago, they had just begun thinking about how to incorporate talking about climate change within their sort of piece because they were coming across more and more people who were entering university, you know, terrified. And this question was really for the front of center or front of mind, I guess. So last question is really just, how can folks follow along with the Climate Emergency Unit, support the last push to get the best version of Halifax's budget passed with the climate plans and sort of anything else to keep up with you and your work? So the Climate Emergency Unit has a newsletter. You can sign up at our website, www.climateemergencyunit.ca. It's a lot of letters, but it will get you there. We just hired a new communications director, Erin Blondeau. Super excited to have her on the team. And I think that she'll be updating our socials more than they were before we had a full-time comms director. I used to do our comms along with the Atlantic organizing and it was just like outrageous. So we'll see what happens, but we also have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Another great way, you know, Seth Clyde, our team lead also is very popular on Twitter and has lots of great things to say. And he also writes for Canada's National Observer. So you can catch a lot of his columns that talk about our ideas or read Seth's book, be good for. Yeah. And I would say that that's the best way to stay involved right now, especially through our newsletter. We try to be pretty thoughtful. And like I mentioned earlier, if you're wanting to mobilize your faith community or your union or 
your workplace, whatever it is, wherever you feel like you have a group of people that might be able to be mobilized, get in touch with us. We have a fantastic director of organizing, Tracy Maynard, and like she's brilliant at figuring out how to have these tough conversations with people that might not always be the first you think about when you think about organizing. Awesome. And so thank you so much. Emma Norton, Atlantic Director with Climate Emergency Unit. Lastly, just as we go to music break, which ends our show, we'd offer our guests a chance to give one last thing, anything that's on your mind, anything that you think is important for people to know today or about the work. We do broadcast kind of coast to coast. There's about eight different radio stations that sort of syndicate the things. But yeah, any last thoughts? This feels like it needs to be a really important thought. But the I think municipal politics right now, there's a lot of really alive conversations related to people's day-to-day well-being, like housing and policing. And I think I just want to stress that investing in housing, climate action, defunding the police and putting it into social programs, whether or not they have direct greenhouse gas emission reductions is climate action. We need to be building a sense of solidarity between each other. We need to be building trust for these institutions like governments and municipal governments. And that means taking care of people. And there's no way we can do this massive undertaking of climate action, the speed and scale required if we are not taking care of each other.